Good evening, everybody. We'll begin the <clears throat> the Dhamma talk this evening with a poem by William Butler Yeats called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. So this evening's talk is about the pure and the beautiful mind. The whole the benefits of concentration, insight, and metta practice. The wholesome states of mind and heart <clears throat> associated with the development and the fruits of concentration, insight, and metta practice. And we'll explore some of the wholesome and beautiful states or factors of mind, as they're sometimes called. The Pali word is cetasikas, that are associated uh, with the development and deepening and fruits of these three practices. All of which include a growing depth and clarity, a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness, which the Buddha called the chief, the chief mindfulness, this quality or this factor of mind that needs to accompany accompany us all through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise uh, teachings and uh, analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in what is called the Abhidhamma Pitaka or the Abhidhamma Basket. So I'd like to do just a a brief review of what this Abhidhamma Basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of three Baskets, one of three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of all of the Buddha's teachings. The first basket, or the first collection, as it's sometimes called, is the Book of Discipline. And this contains all the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns, and all of the guidelines regarding or governing uh, and living in a community. And in this case, meaning a monastic community. Though many, many of these guidelines uh, also apply to living a lay Buddhist in a lay Buddhist community, such as IMS, uh, and the community of people that live here and work here, and those of us here on retreat and temporarily in this community, and also living life as Buddhist practitioners um, in a family, uh, with a partner. Uh, 
living by oneself. The second collection or the second basket uh, brings together all of the discourses, all of the teachings that uh, the Buddha, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. The third collection um, or basket <clears throat> is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has quite a distinctly different uh, character, different quality uh, than the other two. Whereas it's not really a record uh, of discourses or a record of discussions uh, occurring in real life settings, which both of the other baskets are vi- uh, very much rooted in. But rather, this Abhidhamma Pitaka is a very clear and detailed and refined disclosure of the mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective. And it's combined into quite a unique uh, and quite a remarkable synthesis. And it's experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I think it's important in that it can be helpful uh, and inspiring, actually, uh, at some point along the way of practice to actually hear in some detail, at least a bit of detail, uh, about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice to understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my practice, I found this information actually to be quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can help to counter the fears uh, and maybe other aversive reactions to some of the experiences we have in practice, along with the made-up and sometimes fanciful stories and analyses that we come up with in our practice, as well as the sometimes many misperceptions or misunderstandings that come up in practice, and, of course, the attachments, the clinging, that can come up in practice in relationship to what might be some unusual or maybe unfamiliar experiences, or even in relationship to our more familiar uh, experiences, some of which uh, my uh, Burmese teacher, uh, one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, called the Dhamma delights of our practice. And the, Abhi, and the Abhidhamma also helps in terms of the um, experiences that are uncomfortable uh, to understand and not be so fearful and not be uh, making up all kinds of things about those as well. The Abhidhamma speaks about 35 wholesome mental factors, 35 mental states, some of which are both wholesome and beautiful, 
that are associated with the development phase of concentration uh, and uh, the development phase of insight or vipassana practice as well as metta practice. So as it develops, as it unfolds, and as practice blossoms, these various uh, 35 wholesome factors of mind, some of which are beautiful, which I'll explain, I'll explain what that means in a few minutes, they are going on right now, to some degree, some of them, in every one of you. 29 of these wholesome and beautiful mental states Uh, these wholesome and beautiful mental factors are called universals because they're universally developed throughout our practice. Six of them are considered to be occasional and are wholesome, in fact, only if they're accompanied by wholesome mental consciousness. Now this might sound a little bit overwhelming, all these numbers and definitions, but it'll become clearer um, as we begin to explore uh, these various mental factors. The first five factors are active, wholesome mental states that are part of both the very initial and ongoing development of concentration, the pure practice of concentration, along with the focus of attention involved with metta practice, and the first two particularly being very necessary active components throughout our practice of insight or vipassana. The last three of these five factors manifest manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific stages of the development and the manifestation of concentration, all the way through, all the way into and through jhana practice, the deep and uh, absorption states of uh, uh, deep concentration, and also in relationship to metta uh, to varying degrees. And they're also active during particular aspects of Uh, insight practice, mindfulness-based insight practice, vipassana practice. So there are aspects of all of our practices. The practices that Winnie and I have been talking about and exploring with you and you have been exploring during this retreat. So these first five wholesome factors of mind Again, I say, which each of you are experiencing to varying degrees here in this retreat. The first, uh, first I'll just list them. And I I think I did mention them uh, in another talk, and Winnie may have mentioned some of them as well. So some of these words, uh, poly words, might be familiar uh, to you to some degree. so just listing them, uh, the first is, uh, the Pali word is vitaka, which is the initial application of the mind with whatever the object of attention is, is to be or is going to be or already is decided that that's what it's going to be. The second is, the Pali word is vichara, and that's the sustained application of our attention. 
um, on the object of our attention, <clears throat> sustaining that. When they're accompanied, when these two, uh, initial application and sustained application, vitaka and vichara, when they're accompanied by healthy, a healthy, wholesome mind consciousness, these first uh, two mental factors are wholesome mental factors of mind, then they're called occasionals. Unless, if they're not accompanied by a wholesome and healthy mind consciousness, then they're not beautiful. They're not wholesome. Wholesome application uh, and sustaining this application of the mind on something wholesome is certainly possible, of course. You're all doing that on a regular basis over these days. And I am sure we all also know from our own experience that we can uh, and have, uh, at times in our life, applied and sustained our attention on various unwholesome and maybe even harmful or hurtful or unnecessary or frivolous, unskillful, insensitive activities. We've all done that. So these first two, initial application, sustained application. The third one is, Pali word is piti, and it's joy. Sometimes it's defined as zest, a zestful joy, we could say. The next one in Pali is sukha, and it's the simple definition is happiness. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about each of these fill in a little bit more what our experiences uh, might be. The last one, the fifth one, is ikagata, which is one-pointedness. So this vitaka, this initial application, um, it's the application of the mind on the object, as I've already said. It has the characteristic of directing the mind to the object. And in our case, for example, the sensations of the breath at the Anapana spot, or maybe the movement of the breath in the belly, or the experience, the direct sensorial experience of breath elsewhere in the body, or a particular metaphrase, and maybe the internal image of the particular object that we're directing this metaphrase to. Maybe a benefactor, a dear friend, other possible uh, directions to send our metta in. So we're applying the mind to the object. And as I'm sure some of you have mentioned, and if you haven't mentioned it, you've probably experienced, sometimes we apply it again, and it goes off. We apply it again, and it goes off. And again and again it goes off. And we just keep dilig- being diligent about reapplying and reapplying. And finally it seems to get connected for maybe a longer period of time. So we're kind of relieved at that point. We're not working quite so hard. Vitaka's function, this applying the attention's function, uh, as it's very graphically described in the Abhidhamma, says we are striking at the object. 
And I can say from my own experience, it sometimes feels like I'm striking at it again and again and again. The process experientially manifests as leading or training the mind to the object. And it's kind of like training a puppy. You know how puppies are. Well, the mind is kind of like that. So we're training this puppy mind. (laughs) Vitaka has the special task and the fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, sleepiness, or lethargy. And it's very closely associated uh, with intention. As I'm sure you have seen, you make an intention and then you do something to manifest, help manifest that intention. Right intention or wholesome intention, wise intention, as is uh, talked about in the Noble Eightfold Path. So this second factor, the second wholesome factor, vichara in Pali, the sustained application, this has the characteristic of a continued, as it's spoken about in the Abhidhamma, continued pressure or stroking of the object. In the sense of staying with it, hanging in there with it, seeing and knowing as you're hanging in there with it how it's manifesting. So you're mindful all the time. It's this continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind, so to say, on the object. And, of course, in our case here, it's maybe the breath on the spot, or the sensations of the in-breath elsewhere in the body, or a metaphrase, or the image of or the meta-object that we're sending the meta-energy uh, to. Vichara temporarily inhibits the hindrance of doubt to varying degrees as our practice develops. In deep states of concentration, it temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt eventually. And the same thing happens with metta practice and insight practice as this capacity to sustain the attention on the object develops. There are some uh, uh, pretty interesting uh, similes or metaphors in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. The one that I uh, like a lot for vitaka is like a bird spreading its wings to fly. So the initial application. And the image uh, or the metaphorical image for Vichara is like a bird gliding through the air without outstretched wings. So this sustained application. The third factor of mind, PT in Pali, uh, joy or zest or joyful zest, this is considered an an occasional, as it's called, because Only if it manifests, and this is really important, 
and this has come up in some of the groups actually, discussions, only if it manifests with no identification and no attachment while it's occurring is it wholesome and beautiful. The mental characteristic of PT, it can be, uh, as those of you that have even experienced just a touch of, of joy in your practice, or more, it can be quite endearing. And uh, it can be explained as a kind of delight, or a very positive or a pleasurable interest in the object. And many of you have experienced it to varying degrees, even just a touch of it, in, you notice it, it's kind of a delightful moment. It per, at, the, at its early stages, at its developmental stages, as it first begins uh, in the mind, in the body, it's, it's very much felt in the body during its initial stages. It's kind of felt maybe sometimes with little thrills or a feeling of oh, 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 kind of inside or the heart fluttering a little bit, those kinds of things. Um, it's sometimes described as rapture. That's sometimes the definition that's given to PT, although I don't feel that that word really uh, covers all of the nuances of, of this experience. It often manifests as a mind and a body quality of a kind of elation or just a simple gladness, just gladness itself. Joy. Someone in one of the groups talked about wanting to laugh. It does manifest like mirth, merriment, wanting to laugh out loud, certainly smile, a kind of exultation sometimes, exhilaration. and a feeling of just satisfaction in the mind. In the commentary, there are five grades of piti that are distinguished, that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and beginning to perk along or have been perking along for a while in our practice. And I just want to say that some of you hearing this might feel like, well, I haven't, I haven't experienced any of that stuff. I mean, it's just not, not happening for me. I suspect it is. You just have not really noticed. It might be very fleeting, very quick, and very uh, just beginning. But there's little bits and pieces of it as the mind is developed, as concentration is developed. So hopefully hearing this, you don't get discouraged, but you begin to notice things a little more clearly and closely. So these, uh, these five types of uh, dharma delights or dhamma delights, uh, different kinds of PT, uh, I'd like to share them with you. They're kind of interesting and um, surprising maybe to some degree to hear about. And I suspect some of them will be recognized uh, by you as having experiences that you've had to varying degrees. So the first is called minor zest, or minor joy. And it's said to be able to raise the hairs on the body. So they stand up just a little bit. You know, if you get a kind of, um, what's the word? I can't even think of it right now. Uh, kind of shivers or something, you know? 
Goosebumps, that's it, thank you. You get goosebumps, that's it, right there. (laughs) The next is momentary joy or momentary zest. So little flashes of lightning in the mind, little blips and flashes of light. The next is called showering joy or showering zest. And it's a feeling as though a wave, a kind of breaking over and through the body. Just a wave of energy. It can be strong, it can be very mild. Kind of, it's described in the Abhidhamma as like waves on the seashore. So, you know, sometimes there are great big ones and sometimes there are little ones. The next one is called uplifting joy or uplifting zest. And this, uh, this can cause the body to feel as though one is levitating. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen, ever seen anyone do that in a meditation hall, but you might feel that you're even just... One thing that happens is the posture, you, quite spontaneously, is upright. You feel yourself uplifted. Maybe not like you're coming off the ground, but just uplifted. And you haven't done anything, it's just happening. That's pretty common, actually. So, just to say, I did hear a story um, <laughs> from uh, one of the, uh, my friends uh, that I teach with, uh, one of my co-teachers, Sado Vivekananda. Um, he's a, a monk, uh, has a place in, uh, in Asia. Um, and he told me a story uh, about a particular monk in Burma. He, he's not Burmese, he's a German monk, but he's lived, lived in Burma for many, many years. And he said there was a particular monk in a monastery in Burma who was uh, doing sitting practice mostly in his room on his bed. And he, uh, he would rise up, literally a little bit off the bed, and, and then fall over because he couldn't float, you know. So... so uh, and he did it, like, he was, according to the story, he did it again and again and again. Well, as he's, he's not supposed to, but he went and bragged about it to the other monks. Well, they really were wanting to see it. So the kind of guy he was, he said, okay, come to the window of my, my kuti, my little cottage, you know, my, monast- my monastic cottage, and look through the window at this particular time, and you'll see. So they, a bunch of them did that, according to my friend, they looked through, and lo and behold, this guy concentrated, and up he went, and over he fell. <laughs> no comment about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one kind. <laughs> There's pervading joy. It's called pervading joy or pervading zest. And this is like a feeling of the mind and body being flooded, just kind of flooded with a refreshing, kind of bright feeling of elation. And in the Abhidhamma, they describe it as like a flood that fills a cavern. So you may have had a little bit of that at some point. Maybe in this practice, and maybe these things you've experienced at other times as well. I mean, they are... uh, human experiences that we do have, not just when we're practicing concentration. So, okay. As a factor of mind, 
sustained PT, a PT that goes on for uh, quite some time, uh, and, and also it will show up in different ways if it goes on for quite some time. Um, it's actually, as it develops and as it matures, it's experienced much more as a mind state uh, than in the body. But it is very often experienced in the body quite a bit for quite a while. And it has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will, which is uh, something to be quite grateful for. (laughs) With a very, very focused and mindful and absorbed attention uh, on the object, a a much deeper concentration, as happens, can happen eventually with uh, uh, concentration practice, and also with metta practice. Um, PT can temporarily, completely, but temporarily, that's an important word, inhibit ill will. And when it's at that point, it's really only in the mind. It's not really being experienced anymore in the body. So next, uh, happiness, sukha in Pali, which is, as I mentioned, is usually just translated in the simple way as happiness. But we'll explore that a little bit. Uh, this is a state, this is a wholesome state of mind and a beautiful state of mind, but again, very important, only if there's no identification and no attachment when it's occurring. Consequently, it is an occasional. It's called an occasional. This mental factor is a very pleasant, happy, mental feeling that's born out of mind contact with the object of attention, such as the breath on the anapana spot, or maybe the breath in the abdominal area, maybe the breath in and through the whole body occasionally. Uh, um, Also, metaphrases uh, can engender this, Uh, and the object metaphrases in relationship to the object of metta. So this feeling of a kind of sweet happiness, sukha. It's a sweet kind of blissful mental state. And it's born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. It's really not related to the kind of happiness that we experience in relationship to sensual sensual pleasure. So, consequently, it's explained as unworldly or or spiritual happiness. And it can be very, very gratifying, engendering a a, a very deep sense of gratification. The first time I ever experienced it in my uh, concentration practice, I said to the monk that I was, uh, one of the monks I was working with, I said, oh, this is what everybody wants. I better be careful. (laughs) Because I felt like I could just grab it and wanted it and stick to it. I knew what would happen if I did that, but I just had such a strong feeling that this is this happiness is really nice. <laughs> so what I was about to say well, before I said my little personal thing is it's very easy to get attached to this this spiritual happiness. So our mindfulness needs to re- remain very very clear and strong. Always mindfulness. Always. Sukha 
counters and it weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. So although piti and sukha are closely connected, they're not the same. And there's a wonderful description uh, in the commentary uh, to the Abhidhamma that uh, has a a kind of metaphorical uh, uh, taste to it. So here's here's this uh, Abhidhamma commentary description of piti, joy. It's like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. This person sees another person coming along the path from the direction that they're going in um, and asks, where is water? And the other person says, soon there will be a dense forest with a lake. Go there and you'll get some water. Well, upon hearing this, the traveler is very glad, really joyful, and quite delighted, and then more glad and more delighted when they see the leaves on the ground, and then they see people with wet clothing and wet hair, and they hear the sounds of wildfowl, and then see a very dense green forest as though it's like a net of jewels, growing on the edge of the lake. They see the clear, transparent water and water lilies growing on the lake. And then they're more and more joyful, glad, and delighted. So that's the Abhidhamma uh, description of piti. Sukha. Ease, sweet happiness. This is like the traveler, same traveler, entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. And the commentary describes, describes the experience like this. This being descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns, adorns themselves with lotus flowers, and then ascends the lake, dries off with a bathing cloth, and lies down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so slightly and says, oh bliss, oh bliss. With this sense of ease and sweet happiness growing stronger and stronger. And the Abhidhamma, the commentary says, enjoying the taste of the object. So that's sukha. So piti and sukha are closely related, but not the same. And the way that it works, the way that our minds work, is that piti gains prominence before sukha. And it provides the causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these five wholesome mental factors is ikagata in Pali, which is one-pointedness. And it's a universal mental factor. And literally means a one-pointed state. 
this factor is the primary component. It's really the essence of concentration, the essence of samatha. Be it sustained and potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of attention as we have in vipassana, in insight practice, and in our metta practice. One-pointedness temporarily weakens sensual desire to some degree overall. But it's certainly in the process of it manifesting in the midst of our practice, it temporarily weakens it completely, maybe just for a moment or for a more sustained period in the midst of our practice. And it also weakens one's tendency towards blindly or habitually uh, being caught in various aspects of uh, sensual desire when there's a momentary focus of attention accompanied by very strong mindfulness. And again, both of which are necessary uh, conditions for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. The function of ikagata, the function of one-pointedness, is that one is able to very closely contemplate the object, whatever that object may be. Because we're really clearly connected to it. And we're not being distracted by anything. But it can't uh, perform this function uh, by itself. It requires the joint or the cooperative action of all the other, the other four factors that we've just explored, each performing its own special function. Vitaka, applying the attention, along with all of the other four. Vichara, sustaining the attention, etc., etc. I'll just go through them quickly again. PT, bringing delight and interest in in the object, in relationship to the object. And Sukha, experiencing this sweet happiness in relationship to the object. So it takes all of them uh, to to, uh, really closely contemplate the object. So these are the first five... um, wholesome factors of mind that are associated with the development of concentration, insight practice, and metta practice. And the the development and the maturation keeps going. So now I'd like to go on um, and look at uh, the other beneficial factors of mind uh, just uh, much more briefly. Uh, that are associated with concentration, metta, and insight practice. And some of these we've already explored. So I'm going to go through, it's, it's a list of them. Some of them I'll say something about, and some of them we've explored enough I don't, won't say anything about them. Just name them. So the first is uh, classically called decision or resolve. It's adimoka in Pali. Uh, or, or we could say it's our intention. That's another word for it. And this we have looked at, we've explored, we've, you've engaged in, in working with it. Um, it's an occasional, actually, 
uh, as it's wholesome, again, only if it's associated with a wholesome object of consciousness. The word adimoka literally means releasing the mind onto the object. And so it's rendered as decision or resolution. It has the characteristic of conviction and it helps to create and support a a clarity of purpose, a clarity of purpose in relationship to engaging in our practice. The function of it is that we're not groping around. We're not kind of trying this, trying that, oh, what am I going to do? But we're clear. So it manifests, again, as a kind of decisiveness regarding the object of attention. And the nearest and most immediate cause of this uh, is that it it needs something to be convinced about. (laughs) So if we're convinced about doing practice, we really, really want to do it, then we go for it. And we can make a and we might change our mind or we might it might weaken or we back away or you know all kinds of things happen but when we're able to make a clear uh, intention we're convinced this is a good thing to do so we make a resolve an intention maybe to completely give our attention to the breath at the anapanasapada or in the belly or somewhere else in the body or to do metta practice The next one is uh, virya, which um, Winnie spoke about last night, and I've spoken about a little bit, um, which is energy, effort. And I'll just say a little bit about it. It's also an occasional, occasional wholesome state of mind. It's wholesome only when it's associated with wholesome activity, and in this case, wholesome activity and practice. It's the state of one who is vigorous, virya, energy, has lots of energy for what they're engaged in. Its characteristic is exertion and supporting, and in the Abhidhamma they call it marshalling. And its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing. So the mind doesn't collapse. It's buoyed up with lots of energy. It can be encouraged, it can be stimulated by engaging in an experience that arouses energy. So if there's some collapsing going on, it can be as simple as maybe taking a very brisk and refreshing walk, doing 15 minutes of mindful yoga or tai chi or mindful exercise. Any wholesome activity that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, in in this case meaning towards vigorous energetic practice. So the next wholesome factor of mind is Wholesome desire. All desire is not a bad thing. Wholesome desire. Kanda. 
It means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action or to achieve a result, a wholesome result, a wholesome action to achieve a wholesome result. And this this kind of desire, of course, needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire that stems from greed, stems from lust, stems from a deluded mind. Kanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. And it can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal. So in relationship to our practice, what we're doing here. It's spoken of metaphorically in the Abhidhamma commentaries, and this is I love this uh, description, this metaphor, as stretching forth, it's as the, the stretching forth of the mind's hand toward the object. And that's a very interesting expression. It's not trying to grab anything. It's not trying to, trying to hold on to anything. But the hand is open, stretching forth the mind's hand toward the object. Receptivity. So it's uh, very uh, descriptive of a, of a wholesome mind in relationship to our practice. So there's a big list, I'm just going to go through it pretty quickly here, of 27, excuse me, but <laughs> 27 universal beautiful factors or, or states of mind. And a, a number of them we have looked at uh, uh, either a lot or a little bit. So, um, first is faith, which Winnie uh, spoke about last night quite a bit. The next is mindfulness, which uh, we've talked about a lot. I'm not going to talk about it anymore right now. The next two are called in Pali Hiri and Otapa. Hiri is translated as moral shame and otapa is translated as moral dread or moral fear sometimes. And these two beautiful mental factors, hiri, otapa, are considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family, the protection of the community, the protection of the world, and for the protection of all relationships. The next few non-greed, sometimes these are listed as non, so they put the unwholesome one with non before it. Non-greed, non-hatred. The next is neutrality of mind. Now, neutrality of mind is actually associated with equanimity. It actually means equanimity. Tranquility of mind and heart. Tranquility is extensive calmness. It's not just sort of an ordinary calmness in terms of our practice. It's quite an extensive calmness. Tranquility of mind and heart. Tranquility of consciousness. Lightness of heart and mind. So meaning a a brightness, uh, the opposite of heaviness, the opposite of the sinking heart or the sinking mind or sinking consciousness. So lightness of mind and heart. Lightness of consciousness. Next is malleability of mind and heart. And this means non-rigidity, a really malleable heart, a really malleable mind, 
malleability of consciousness. Next is wieldiness of heart and mind. And what does that mean? It means the ability for the mind to go where it needs to go. I actually, heart-mind is a kind of two words in one, (laughs) or one word in two. They they really uh, go together, so so I just use them together a lot. So this ability for the heart-mind or the mind-heart to go where it needs to go, to be very wieldy, wieldiness of consciousness. Next is proficiency. Proficiency of the mind, proficiency of the heart. What does this mean in this relation, in relationship to our practice? Clarity and quickness of the heart. Clarity and quickness of the mind. Proficiency of consciousness. Next is uprightness or honesty of heart and mind. Honesty of consciousness. Uprightness of of of. Uh, mind, heart, and consciousness. The next four are the Brahmaviharas, the divine abidings, which are both beautiful and wholesome. Metta, unconditional friendship, friendliness, kindness, care. Karuna, boundless, unconditional compassion. Mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy in relationship to others, joy, happiness, success. And next is upekka, equanimity, the balance of mind, the neutrality and balance of the mind and heart. And these are, as I said, both all four of them beautiful and wholesome, considered beautiful and wholesome qualities. Now, again, just to say all of these, many, that, many, many here, It's all happening. It's all cooking inside your heart and mind and body. Right now. Day by day. It's true. (laughs) It is. So, three more beautiful uh, mental factors, and they're called the abstinences. They're three very distinct uh, factors that the Buddha very often uh, spoke about that come through three different uh, types or three different levels of abstinence. And all three of these are really very important uh, for the development of concentration and insight. So the first is called natural abstinence. And what does this mean? It means the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm, cause harm to oneself and to others, when the abstinence from these deeds, when an opportunity arises in our life to engage in them due to various conditions. So various conditions of particular circumstances, maybe in relationship to one's social position, one's age, one's level of education, one's um, background, upbringing, oh, there's lots of conditions. And these uh, possibilities arise to engage in um, harmful deeds, harmful actions, harmful thoughts, actions. So natural abstinence is that one naturally abstains from these mental and physical deeds out of one's innate wisdom, 
out of one's innate wisdom and compassion. And we all have that, or we wouldn't be here. The second is abstinence by undertaking the precepts. So our commitment uh, while we're here and, and maybe uh, more than just when we're here to live our life observing the precepts. Abstaining from killing, abstaining from harmful speech, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from taking intoxicants. So we may at some point be moved, and maybe some of you have already been moved, to take the precepts or to make a a resolve to ourselves to live our life as much as we possibly can uh, with undertaking the precepts in our daily life. Or part, some of them, maybe not all of them, some of them. It's it's a process that goes on. The the next one is abstinence by eradication. This is a really interesting one. This comes uh, comes about through the fruits, it's all interesting actually to me, but uh, which comes about through the uh, the fruits of engaging in the supramundane uh, a path of the purification of the heart, the purification of the mind, the purification of consciousness. This path of the Buddha Dhamma, this path of awakening. So what's eradicated? What is eradicated, and this is pretty profound actually, what is eradicated is any disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause any harm. Think about that. No, absolutely no inclination whatsoever to engage in any harmful deeds. That's quite something, if we're really honest with ourselves. It's an amazing possibility. So, the first two of these abstinences are considered mundane. They're quite common, really. Uh, They're ordinary in the worldly sense. This last one, uh, abstinence by eradication, is supramundane. It's, It's meaning it's not common in the worldly sense. But it's, it comes out of a purified, a pure, a spiritually purified nature. The awakened heart, the awakened mind. The last of the long list of wholesome and beautiful mental factors, wholesome and beautiful mental states of mind that develop through our practice is non-delusion. This is the wisdom faculty. The wholesome and uh, beautiful mental factor of insight, of understanding, and eventually the liberation of the heart and the mind, which is really the essence of our path of practice, this path of the mind, of the heart, 
the author Carlos Castaneda said, a person of knowledge or a person of wisdom, I, I added, uh, chooses a path with heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. the importance of beginning to really clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice, your own practice experience uh, of concentration, mindfulness, metta, as they continue to blossom, is that with knowledge of, of what's occurring and why it's occurring, we really have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, recognize, and know these beautiful and wholesome states without attachment and without identification and without fear or other various other aversive reactions and without misunderstanding and without misperceptions. But rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is what actually allows the continuing development of our practice to just keep unfolding and blossoming. And some words from the Buddha. He's talking to his, uh, his bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, his monks and nuns. And he's talking about the Anapanasati practice in particular. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, yogis, mindfulness with breathing, Anapanasati, that one has developed and make, made much of has great fruit and great benefit. Even I myself, before awakening, when not yet enlightened, while still a bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be is the translation of that, while still a bodhisattva, lived in this dwelling, this way of life, for the most part. When I lived mainly in this dwelling, the body was not stressed, the eyes were not strained, and my mind was released from the asavas, or the corruptions, the cankers, the hindrances, released from unwholesome states, through non-attachment. For this reason, should anyone wish, may my, body, may my body be not stressed, may my eyes be not strained, may my mind be released from the asava through non-attachment, then that person ought to attend carefully to his heart, in his heart-mind, to this mindfulness of breathing meditation. So some advice from the Buddha for us. So as we come to the end of the talk this evening, uh, I'd like to offer you some advice from another person. This is uh, advice from... uh, 
his name is Robert Piercig. Robert Piercig wrote a book that some of you may have read called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yes, I hear some, <laughs> yes, I see some heads shaking. It's one of the first, quote, Buddhist books I ever read. So this is from Robert Piercig. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle, as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. And closing the talk with some words from an 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master, Atisha. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest (coughs) generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is peace of mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. So let's sit quietly for just a moment or two. May all of the wholesomeness and fruits 
that manifest through our practice serve with immeasurable impartiality, without bias, without prejudice, towards the welfare, the happiness, and the awakening of all beings everywhere. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.